Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Salatu vesselam ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men ve ala nevine ta'allimu ve ta'alimu nefru al-intifa' ve tezekkir ve tezkir ve ifadete ve istifade ve hath ala temasak bi kitabillah ve sunnatu Resulihi sallallahu alayhi ve sellem ve dua ila al-huda ve dalala ala al-khayr ibtiqa'u ve tilahi ta'ala ve marrati ve kurbi ve thawabihi subhanahu ve ta'ala اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد الفاتح لما أغلق خاطئ لما سبق ناصر الحق بالحق والهال إلى صلاته المستقيم على آله وعلى آله حق قدر مكاره العظيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما خير إن شاء الله so we're going to continue on in our study of the intentions and we're not reading through the book word by word um, we are just taking that uh, what we can from some of the various intentions that are made for the various things that we do and um, that we're going to look at today some of the intentions that we can make in acquiring books for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they used to mention about uh, the great Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad is that they said that, that his wife was very jealous over the books that he used to have because that she always saw those books as being in competition with her. And that she actually ended up saying to him that she would rather is that he take a second wife rather than having so many books. In other words, is that his, her point was is that, that she saw the books as taking her husband away from her. And so that there are a number of righteous intentions that we can make when we acquire books for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we'll just mention a few. And again, the theme here is, is that the overarching intentions that we make for everything are we intend to draw near to Allah Ta'ala, we intend to seek His pleasure, we intend to gaze upon His noble countenance, and to receive reward. So those four tension, intentions can be made for everything that we do. And then we can add some to them as well. And one of the great intentions that we can make is to preserve knowledge and to protect it from being lost. Because it is by having books that you can preserve knowledge. Yes, that knowledge be, needs to be studied, but if someone themselves doesn't study the book, perhaps one of their children, or one of their children's children, or someone that comes after them, will access that book, benefit from that book. And there is, that is one of the great blessings to be uh, gifted a book from someone in your family, someone your grandfather, your great-grandfather, or someone like that. And um, that is a, a, a very great blessing. Unfortunately, in the Muslim world, oftentimes you find is that children that come after is that they oftentimes don't realize what are in the libraries of their parents. And so you hear these stories, subhanAllah, of children selling books away, they're selling their parents' books away. Their parents toiled and troubled themselves on multiple continents in many different countries and spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars virtually all of their extra money to the point that they couldn't even take vacations with their families were spent on books and all of the difficulty and toil and trouble and time that went into that collection and all of a sudden their kids come along and don't respect what it is that they have and sell off their books and subhanAllah how many manuscripts have been sold off to people that they shouldn't really be in the hands of those people. 
how many very rare great books that are that who knows what happened to them sometimes they're auctioned off for very small prices uh, because of the next generation not realizing uh, what is the uh, how important these books are and the treasures that lie therein and I remember Sheikh Hamza Yusuf saying one time um, on, first of all he's someone who subhanallah whenever you're around him you will necessarily come to love books I've never seen a book lover in my life like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf he is an incredible book lover and if you've ever been book shopping with him if you think we buy a lot of books, just go book shopping with Sheikh Hamza. And I've been with him before and literally shopping carts in the plural. And anything of the most remote interest is that he'll just stack up. He'll just stack up. But the difference between him and other people, he actually reads them. And um, he, he actually really does read all of those books. And I remember him saying, is that from the bounty of Allah Ta'ala upon him, is he never ever said that a book was expensive out of adab with what's in that book. Okay, yes, you might not be able to afford a book, but to say that a book is expensive, that's bad adab. Like, expensive? How could it be expensive? If something you read in there leads to eternal salvation, how is that expensive? And subhanAllah, and we should have adab with books. We should have adab in terms of where we place books. We should have adab in the way that we arrange books. If you ever see a book upside down, Turn it right side up, that they even go to the extent of not wanting to put anything on top of books like pins or something like this or even your, whatever it might be, that we should respect books, we should keep them in high places. If we ever see them on the ground, that we should pick them up. And uh, this is all very, very important. And so that uh, books are, uh, that uh, we, we need to preserve them and um, that we should love them. And one of the other things that Shekhamza said about it was, is you think about how amazing the concept of a book is. This emanated from someone's mind. And really what we have in a sense is their life recorded for us in the book. And obviously not every aspect of their life, but think about the thought that went into a lot of these books and the research and the, and, and the study. And then here it's all here accessible for us, arranged in chapters and so forth, so we can access it. If you really think about that, that's really amazing. How long did that person have to study in order for them to reach that point where they could then write a book? And then here you have the book right before you. It's really amazing if you think about that. And um, that to have access to someone's lifelong struggle right here before you in an easy way, accessible way for you to then to benefit from and access is really just truly amazing, this whole idea of their actually even that being books. And so uh, one of the great intentions we can make is to preserve knowledge and to protect it from being lost. Even though, of course, that you need scholars who are going to be keys that open up these books for us. And this is the other thing is that once you really get into books and you start reading the meanings that lie therein, Ya Allah, it, it really is a joy like no other joy. Of all of the degrees, all of the various degrees of desire, the highest desire of all in the human being is, relates to acquisition of knowledge. Meaning is that once that desire opens up for you and you inculcate that and you cultivate that within yourself, 
all of the other desires beneath it, you will prefer knowledge over all of them. And um, so knowledge in that books that contain that knowledge are of the utmost importance. The, another intention that we can make is to spread and disseminate the teachings of our Prophet wasallam. And this is something that we hope to see increasingly in our masajid and in our places of learning is that there be books available so that in addition to recitation of the Qur'an and worship that people can come and they can read on their own. This is something that we want to encourage, that there be circles of knowledge and so forth to bring life to the heart and to the community. And by having the books present, this is uh, something that will allow for that to continue on. I'm reminded of a story of Habib Omar's oldest brother, Habib Mashur, during the communist period of Tareem, which was a very difficult period where people had to study in the most difficult of circumstances. They would have to do so secretly, and oftentimes they would do so at the opposite ends of the day. So very early in the morning and very late at night. And they would sneak into people's homes and they would study. They would carry their books that inside of their garments. And um, when they, many of the manuscripts were being confiscated, and many of them were destroyed, one of the things that Habib Omar's brother did is that he would sneak into the places where they were holding them before they destroyed them and he would take them back. And he's risking his life because if they caught him he would have been severely punished. But he, he went secretly because he realized subhanAllah how important these books were. And this is a time still where there would have been a large number of manuscripts. Now one of the pitfalls of the printing press is oftentimes we take this for granted. You can purchase this for a price and then you know, sometimes we don't take for granted that this work, whereas if you would have that transcribed this book from another manuscript copy, you would have taken very good care of this, especially if you took the time to do that. Or is it if you purchased a transcribed copy? And so um, it, it is in a sense, it's not that knowledge isn't for everyone, it is, but you have to, one, have the tools for knowledge, and two, you have to have the proper adab that in approach to knowledge. Uh, so, is that by having books present, is it, it's one of the ways to disseminate the teachings of our Prophet wasallam. The th a third intention that we can make is by virtue of this book, think about what it contains from blessed verses of the Qur'an, what it contains from a hadith of our Prophet wasallam, sayings of the righteous people who came before us, is that you make the intention to seek the blessing of having verses of the Qur'an present a hadith of the Prophet and present, and the statements of the righteous present, and the great scholars and that saints who came before us, is that these books comprise their knowledge. And by having them, is that the, in just having them on the shelf is that a great blessing. And there's something about books, if you go upstairs to that some of those rooms there with books on the shelf, you feel a deep sense of intimacy. What better... And they're not decorations, but what better thing to enter into? There's something that it does to you psychologically. Just being around books is that it makes you feel comfortable. It makes you feel have an intimate-like feeling just by knowing that there's books around, and especially books of benefit. And then there are some books, especially like they say, the Shifa of Qadiyyad. By having that book in your home, it's a means of protection. It's a means of protection. By having the diwan of Imam al-Haddad, just having that diwan with you is a means of protection. There are many people in the place that I studied in Tareem 
that keep a copy of the Diwan Imam Haddad in their glove compartment, in their car, in any car that they have. It's a source of protection. So just having the books in and of themselves, there's a blessing in it. And that one of the righteous, Habib Ahmed Hassan Al-Tas, he used to be able to see light even though outwardly he was blind. He was Basir. Out of Adab we say he was Basir. He could see with the eye of his heart. He would be able to see spiritual light in books and how they bring light to someone's home. And this is why there's a basic library that every Muslim should have. There's certain books that every Muslim needs to have at home. And collecting books for these intentions and to then give them to your children and hope that they then read them when they come at a later time is one of the great things that we can do. So to seek the blessing of the verses and the ahadith of our Prophet ﷺ and the righteous and the saints that, um, that are mentioned in them is another intention that we can make as well. And there's a, a number of others that uh, are mentioned here in this book. We'll just maybe just cover a couple of others. Uh, but uh, we can make other intentions like um, that making the intention to do Amr bin Ma'ruf munkar by having that books of knowledge present, it will assist us in this process of teaching people what is good and that helping people avoid that which will distance them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, it is a, a means to uh, that to um, uh, also that um, make manifest the banners of Islam and spread knowledge. And that's similar to an intention that we made before. Some of these tensions, when they mention them in great detail, overlap one with another. But that what we mentioned uh, suffices uh, because that's at the, the heart of uh, what it is that we can, um, that we can intend. So we should remind ourselves of these intentions when we acquire books and um, that as they sit on our shelves, we don't want those shelves to become dusty though, that it also is very important that we that access them and read them um, because really that when you enter into these books, it's like entering into a garden. Is that you're exposed to all of these beautiful meanings and that you move from that beautiful flower to beautiful flower, beautiful meaning to beautiful meaning. May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq. So we're on chapter 4. Bismillah. Knowledge and wisdom, Haddad, Chapter 4, Pride and Heedlessness, where he says, Proud and heedless people are diverted away from the signs of God, from understanding his secrets and from seeing his light. He, sallallahu, uh, he most high, says, I shall turn away from my signs those who wrongful those who are wrongfully proud on the earth. When they see each sign, they believe it not. And when they see the way of the righteousness, when they see the way of the righteousness, they choose it not for their way. But when they see the way of error, they choose it for their way. That is because they deny our signs and are of them heedless. Thus does God the exalted depict them as proud and possessors of blameworthy attributes, the last to be mentioned being heedlessness of his signs, from which he diverts them because of their pride and unawareness. This is because these are ailments of the heart that until it is cured, until it is cured of them and freed of their deleterious effects, 
disqualified and rendered unfit to understand God's sign, signs. How can a proud man understand God's signs when he is conceited and arrogant and does not humble himself before the truth and its people? God places a seal on his heart as he says, the, and August is the speaker, thus does God set a seal upon every proud, arrogant heart. As for the heedless one, his distraction diverts his heart away from understanding the signs of his Lord, so that he turns and moves away from God. This is why God commanded his prophet to turn away from such people, saying, Transcendent and exalted is he, turn away from him who flees from our remembrance and desires but the life of the world. And he, and he says, and he said, exalted is he, and obey not him whose heart we have made heedless of our remembrance. So be on close guard against pride, for it is the element that afflicted Iblis and prevented him from obeying God and exalted the exalted's command to prostrate himself before Adam, may peace be upon him. He balked and was too proud and thus deserving for his arrogance and rebellion of degradation, cursing, expul expulsion from God's mercy and perpetual everlasting wretchedness. We ask God the exalted to save us from all afflictions. Be also on close guard against forgetting God the exalted, his remembrance and the hereafter, for heedlessness is a major cause of ruin. It brings on all kinds of evil and afflictions in both this world and the next. God the Exalted says, Indeed, those who expect not to meet us are content with the life of the world and feel, and feel secure therein. And those who are ne ne neglectful of our signs, their home will be the fire because of what they earn. And he, Most High, says, They know only some appearance of the life of the world and are heedless of the hereafter. So see how he first negates their possession of knowledge, then ascribes outward worldly knowledge to them, and concludes with depicting them as heedless of the hereafter. So understand and reflect. God grants success. There is no Lord but him. So chapter 4 is titled, Pride and Heedlessness. And in this chapter, that Haddad is giving us insight into two very terrible qualities of the heart. One is kibr, and the other is ghafla. Kibr translates as arrogance, pride, and ghafla translates as heedlessness. And he doesn't just speak about these two qualities, he speaks about the outcome of having these qualities in the heart. And this is of the utmost importance, or importance for us to understand. And he begins his discussion by saying, is that proud and heedless people are diverted away from the signs of Allah, from understanding his asrar, his secrets, and from seeing his lights. And Imam Haddad has this amazing approach. And one of the most important things that underlies his goal for which he wrote all of these works relates to spiritual realization, realization of Iman, Islam, and Ihsan. So one of the things he always tells us is the consequences in the spiritual sense of 
not implementing, for instance, in this case, pride and heedlessness or whatever discussion is at hand. He wants us to know that, that what's going to happen, what are the spiritual consequences of that? And what are the possibilities were we to actually avoid these various things? And so that the first is, is that they're diverted from the signs of Allah, which is a very, very scary thing. And in relation to arrogance, he quotes this verse in Surah Al-A'raf. It says, an And um, Allah Ta'ala says that He will divert His signs. He will turn them away. Uh, that from those who show arrogance in the earth without right. And um, the danger there is, is that if we understand the ayat of Allah, and the importance of Allah's signs, and the whole goal of the religious life, and how we understand that the verses in the Quran and how we understand the signs that in his, in his creation, subhanahu wa ta'ala, if we have the, if these signs are being diverted from us, right, and that we don't have the ability to see them, how are we going to fulfill our purpose here on earth that as human beings? And that this is a result of what? This is a result of the arrogance and pride that lies in the hearts of people. And that he translates it here as those who are wrongfully proud on earth. And um, that, uh, that this verse ends, then Allah Ta'ala goes on to say, the full verse after saying that says, And that were even were they to see every sign, they wouldn't believe in it. Even were they to see right before them the path of right guidance is that they would not that embark upon that path. But whereas if they see the path of misguidance is that they take it as their particular way. That is because they have denied our signs. And they were heedless of them. And here, when we think about people denying kathabu, denying the signs of Allah Ta'ala, how does that happen at the heart level? It's very possible that that person is in good shape, that they could even have a nice appearance to them. They could be very nice people even. And what takes place at the heart level is very, very, very subtle. It's very subtle. And even though with what was mentioned is that you could have people that are Consciously denying the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it really relates to that how we interact with everything that is happening around us and the doors that we open up for ourselves and close for ourselves respectfully based upon the decisions that we make and everyone has opportunities in life everyone has opportunities and if we that go after those opportunities and inwardly at the level of our heart is that Follow those thoughts that will lead to other thoughts that will lead to other thoughts that open door after door after door after door until is that things actually become clear to us, then that we will receive guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if we cover them up, which is a type of denial, and we refuse to think about them, or we don't have the courage to think about them, or is that we postpone thinking about them, and all of these different ways that we cover things up at the level of the heart, subhanAllah. Uh, it very well might be is that eventually that our hearts are sealed. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us 
and by virtue of what we have brought about all upon ourselves, Allah Ta'ala would not seal someone's heart for no reason. Is that He only, Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, leads astray those who have already gone astray and of their own selves. And that He will only seal the heart of someone who is that has opened up the door internally for them to have their heart sealed. Otherwise, is that anyone who is wanting to receive guidance and has an open heart and has an intention to that come to that right guidance or has the intention to someday come to the intention or the intention to someday have an intention to make an intention ultimately and you could just keep going is that Allah Ta'ala will guide those people but if we that close ourselves off internally and there's very subtle ways that that happens with us it gets successively harder and harder and harder and harder to have that door that opened up for us again and so, um, that one of the commentators that says about this, سَأَصْرِفُ an ayati, When Allah Ta'ala says, I shall turn away my signs. He says, أَيْ fil afaq wal anfus That are erected in the horizons and in our own selves, as we that find in another verse, سُنُرِهِمْ آيَاتِنَا fil afaq wa fi anfusihim. We shall indeed show them our signs in the horizons and in their own selves. That indicate our power and our oneness. From the wondrous things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. You don't need to be a scientist to reflect upon the signs of Allah wa ta'ala. You don't need to be a scientist. All you need is but to take the time to ponder some of the meanings. And you might need a little bit of help at first and use what some of the scholars have written on the topic as a crutch to teach yourself how to start doing it. And once you have the ability to reflect on your own, you will have amazing meanings come to your heart. If I think about the few reflection sessions that we've done at some of our retreats, subhanAllah, we'll reflect on a meaning for a few minutes, and people that might not have ever really done it before come up with amazing things. Amazing things come to their mind. And as a result of spending that time in a state of reflection, but we have to spend the time doing so. And fitrah when you, is that when you look at the wonders of Allah Ta'ala's creation, when you look at today at about 5, 5.30, those incredible rain clouds, and it's very dark, almost like it's after Maghrib, and Maghrib is still two hours away. And then the winds come, and then the rain starts to pour down, and then the thunder, and then the lightning. What is the natural state that we're in when we see that? It's just like, subhanAllah. Right? That's fitrah, is to that see that as wondrous. And it is that wondrous. And we have to be very careful to let science demystify. Science can demystify if we're not careful. And that if someone's going to embark upon a scientific approach, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but is that you have to especially train yourself to still be in a state of awe and wonder, which you really should if you're understanding the details of what's behind it. But oftentimes people think that, oh, because I can explain it, that it's no longer wondrous. On the contrary, is that if you're able to explain it, you should be in a greater state of wonder. Just to think about the details of how all of this is happening. This is truly wondrous. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that... He, we have to train ourselves to see what He's created and have that connect us to Him, Tabaraka wa Ta'ala. And that what He says is here is that, that um, it can also relate to the Qur'an. 
Over the Quran or Ghayrihu min al-Kutub, it could relate to the divinely revealed books. It could relate to the Quran, meaning that Allah Taala will that when someone comes to the Quran, if they come to the Quran with arrogance, they're going to be blinded by the Quran, and they actually might be led astray. The Quran is not leading them astray. Their approach to the Quran is leading them astray. This is why one of the great benefits I've heard from Sheikh Nur Keller. As he said, whenever you start reciting the Qur'an, just pause for one moment and make tawbah. You say, Astaghfirullah. Seek forgiveness for all of your sins. And then read the Book of Allah. So that one, you're polishing your heart, but two, you're entering into the Qur'an with humility. And if you enter into to the Qur'an with humility, is that Allah Ta'ala will open up the meanings for you. But if you enter proudly, that uh, you will be blinded from the meanings that you need. You might read the verse and completely understand the wrong meaning. Or it might bring about a thought that is ultimately demonic, based upon someone's own state, not based on the Quran uh, in and of itself. And um, that, uh, in the, again, this, this relates to that this as well. And um, uh, that the other etiquettes that we have with Allah Ta'ala's book are also very important for us to to be able to receive meaning from them. And then what he says here is that these people who show this arrogance in the earth without right is that there's a tabah ala qulubihim fala yatafakkuruna fiha is that they have their hearts in that sense are sealed and it causes it causes them to be unable to reflect upon them or to learn lessons from them. So reflection is one thing that's called tafakkur and then you have what's called i'tibar, which is to take lessons. And that is of the utmost importance, is that we take lessons from everything that is happening around us. From the situations of people that we see around us, from the things that happen in Allah Ta'ala's creation, and from things that we know that happened to the people who came before us, is that we have to learn lessons. And the principle states, if you do not take heed uh, from a lesson of someone who came before you, is that you will be a lesson for someone to come after you. May Allah protect us. May we learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn. Sometimes, subhanAllah, that we do something, something happens to us. We're supposed to learn the lesson. Okay, don't do that again. And we do it again. Wow, it happens again. We do it again. Boom, it happens again. We're supposed to learn the lesson that of any particular situation. And... They mentioned about there was this one particular that man who kept falling into a particular sin. And every time he'd fall into that sin, Allah would send him a tribulation. He committed that sin again, Allah would send him a tribulation. He committed that sin again, Allah would send him a tribulation. And that tribulation would cause him to repent every time from that sin. Until one time, he committed that sin and Allah did not send him a tribulation. And at that point, he panicked. Because he felt that Allah had abandoned him. And so he said he made a tawbah nusuh. He made a sincere repentance to never ever again return that thing and then he left it completely. But subhanAllah, that, uh, if, that these, are, these are opportunities for us to have atonement uh, when uh, things like that happen, if we have the correct perspective. Anyhow, that he quotes these verses and he says, Thus does God the exalted depict them as proud and possessors of blameworthy attributes, the last to be mentioned being heedlessness of his signs, from which he diverts them because of their pride and unawareness. This is because these are ailments of the heart that, 
until it is cured of them and freed of their deleterious effects, disqualify and render it unfit to understand God's signs. Which also for us is a very important aspect of what we could call our psychology. The way that the diseases of the heart and our emotions and our desires affect our thought. If we think of the human being as just as a rational animal, it's not the case. We are affected by a whole bunch of different things. And that we have this sense because oftentimes we are around intelligent people that can describe certain things in ways that we are unable to, that we, in a sense, look up to those people and respect them, sometimes even uh, beyond the way that we really should. And we take people as um, that signposts for the truth, as opposed to understanding the truth and finding its people. And um, not that we don't have a trust with certain people in relation to their presentation of knowledge, but especially with people who don't believe in La ilaha illallah Rasulullah, is that this whole idea is that there is somehow that objectivity that in, for instance, the academic approach or the scientific approach, and that this is completely unfiltered, that, you know, object, an objective approach to knowledge, that is that's completely ridiculous. Anyone that knows from within that will see firsthand how oftentimes theories and that uh, various things, that, that theses that people are trying to prove, that are really the very worst aspects of themselves projected outwardly, and that there's an attempt then just to find something to that prove what it is that they set out to, that uh, look for in the beginning. And so that we know that they were that affected by the state of our heart, we're affected by the vices and the virtues of the heart, we're affected by the desires at the level of the heart, and it can pollute our perspective on things. And it can pollute even the conclusions that we come to in relation to things. And how can a proud man understand God's signs when he is conceited and arrogant and does not humble himself before the truth and its people? God places a seal on his heart as he says, thus does God set a seal upon every proud, arrogant heart. And the meaning here of the seal is that, that one is diverted from that understanding the truth in the affairs. And so that's what he says about the person of arrogance. And he says, as for the heedless one, his distraction diverts his heart away from understanding the signs of his Lord, so that he turns and moves away from Allah. Uh, one other meaning, just quickly. And this is why, when it comes to being Muslim in this particular place, in this particular time, is that along with our unwavering commitment to our faith, is that we also have to be 100% unapologetic about our deen. This is our deen. Whether people like it or they don't like it, this is our deen. And we should be proud of the fact that we are servants of Allah Ta'ala. Our pride is in that we are abid. We are servants of Allah Ta'ala. And if we even show so much as a weakness outwardly in relation to this, is that we are setting ourselves up to be devoured. Really, we are. Is that we have to be really, really firm in relation to this. Unwavering. This is our deen. And that we have to understand is that when you are dealing with people that have arrogance, is that you can't expect an arrogant person to be able to accept these teachings. The hope is, is that through you interacting with them and through you that 
finding ways to get around their ego to their heart is that you can help them. But ultimately, the arrogant person has to leave their arrogance. The prideful person has to leave their pride. And that's going to block them from the truth. And we have to understand is that we live in a, a very arrogant society. Now, there's been arrogant people who've lived all throughout the centuries. But modern man is especially arrogant. Is that there are many people that, that think because of these incredible technological breakthroughs that somehow that we are immune to many of the tendencies of the civilizations that came before us, which is absolutely ridiculous. Sometimes people think because of everything that we've been able to achieve that you will hear people say, you know, just, and this is, this is commonplace, that, you know, we're the best civilization ever. And, um, and these types of things, we have to be very, very careful to let them creep into the heart because they will blind you. And if someone, one of the great tests to see if this is your state of heart or not is to go on the pilgrimage and to pray in many of the places that you will pray and that sometimes the ground is dirty and the people around you are poor and they stink and the carpet is stinky and the bathrooms are dirty and the food is not like the normal food that you eat. In all of these other circumstances, what is the state of our heart? What is the state of our heart? Are we troubled by that? Can we not imagine ourselves being in a situation like that? Is that Muslims must remain humble. Must remain humble. And without humility, is it to the degree that there's arrogance? La hawla wa la billah. Is to the degree that we will be, that we will be that blinded by truth. And if you have a Muslim who's accepted the truth, but is, uh, that also has this vice of pride, is that there'll be various degrees that they're prevented from progressing along the spiritual path as a result. There'll be certain things that don't open up for them. If they find it difficult for them to sit before teachers, if they find it difficult to them, for them to that learn from other people. And they, they mention is that a scholar doesn't become a scholar until he takes from people that actually have more knowledge than him. Until he takes from people that have more knowledge than him. It's one of the most amazing things if you spend time with Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah. Whenever he is at any retreat or any seminar or any program of any sort, he is in every single session from beginning to end. Every single session. And he refuses to not sit in every single session. He wants to be in every single session. And he takes notes. And that many of these people, that what fraction of knowledge do they have compared to the knowledge of the ocean, oceanic knowledge of Dr. Omar? But he's in every single session of every single person. Just no matter who, the, and he's taking notes. And he's learning. And subhanAllah, he might even ask them questions. He might even ask them perspective on things. That is amazing. If we could bring that ethos into it, subhanAllah, that things would be that, uh, you know, uh, that very, very different. And we all have to learn from each other and we all have to benefit from each other and that know that there's different degrees that we benefit from that different types of people. We have to have that clarity in this process as well. But this all gets back to humi humility. But it's very important that we, that we recognize the society in which we live. And the one thing about a very arrogant and prideful person is that that is not the time 
to just cower away and to be soft. If you're dealing with arrogant and prideful people, you have to be strong. You have to be firm. And sometimes you have to let, act a, a, little, a way outwardly to let, let that arrogant and prideful person know that they cannot pick on you or they cannot manipulate you or something like that. It's very important, especially for our children growing up in this society, is that you'll be put in certain situations where you that think that you might have to compromise your deen because of how the people are before you. But we need to rule out to begin with this idea that we need to fit into something. Fit into what? If we're trying to fit into society in the way that they want us to be, oftentimes where you have people that are prideful and that refuse to submit to that the realities that of La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, that that was we've 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 failed to begin with it. That's how we approach these things. Anyhow. He then speaks about the person of Rafla, and he says, His distraction diverts his heart away from understanding the signs of his Lord. So in a different way, the arrogant one is diverted, but also the heedless one. So that he turns and moves from Allah. This is what Allah has commanded his Prophet to turn away. This is why Allah has commanded his Prophet to turn away from such people, saying, Turn away from him who flees from our remembrance and desires but the life of this world. And he said, So... And obey not him whose heart we have made heedless of our remembrance. And so that there are certain people, that's our response to them, is that we turn away from them. And um, that the Arabic is, Do not obey, do not follow the one who we've made their heart heedless from our remembrance. And so there are certain people, is that you turn away from and that you don't busy yourself with trying to argue with them, trying to be preoccupied with them. Sometimes that is our response. This is what Allah Ta'ala is commanding our Prophet. We're here to help everyone. But if we know that there are people that are that refusing to allow themselves to be helped, if that these are people that are by interacting with them, it's going to cause a greater harm than it is going to be in terms of bringing about benefit. There are certain times that we have to turn away from the situation. That we don't have to have every conversation with every person. There are certain things you have to just leave and turn away from them. And that's our response. And at other times, it's as Allah Ta'ala says, that it relates to not obeying. That people whose hearts that are heedless from the remembrance of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And another meaning of this is, is that if someone is in a state of heedlessness, how much guidance can they really provide you? And that goes for a Muslim, let alone a non-Muslim, who's completely distant from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't mean that we don't treat people nicely. We treat everyone as a foundation nicely. It doesn't mean that knowledge isn't the lost property of the believers. It is. But we have to be very careful in terms of what we take and what we don't take. And unfortunately, is that oftentimes we don't have the tools to hear different people speak on different topics of knowledge, whether it be a TED lecture, whether it be an NPR that, uh, you know, program, or whether it be reading the news or whatever book it is that we're reading. Oftentimes we fail to have the tools that we need to incorporate what is good from that into a worldview of Tawheed. And um, so we have to be very careful that to 
that shed some of the things that come with various aspects of knowledge because we're being exposed to it. All of us have iPhones or Androids or whatever, some type of device or iPad or we're on the internet and we're being exposed to knowledge in the age of information in ways that is unbelievable. Is that we are exposed more uh, on, on a weekly basis than people were exposed to in a lifetime. We are exposed more on a weekly basis than previous people were exposed to in a lifetime. They say the average person uh, that was b before the modern era was exposed to a weekly subscription of the New York Times over a lifespan. So you subscribe to the New York Times and that's you know, everything that's in that all of those articles, that amount of knowledge was in the pre-modern period is what people were exposed to over a lifetime. Were exposed in a very, very short period of time. And so that, that requires that we be very careful about what we take in and what we don't take in. And then you understand the pervasive nature of the modern world. Where Yalatif, we talk about protecting our children. We need to protect ourselves. <laughs> yes, we need to protect our children too. They're just inundated in meanings. And anyone who has young children know that. Where are the good, healthy, beneficial books for our children to read? Especially when they reach the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 in their teens. Where now that they can engage, now that they're thinking, now what really exists in terms of literature? that is going to really be of benefit. Okay, yes, there's a few good classics that you know, are out there. There's probably a lot of classics, but from a fully Islamic perspective, even with many of those classics, you have to be somewhat careful. You have to that train them how to think about these ideas that they're being exposed to. You have to train them how to think about them. They can't just take them that wholesale, is that we have to be able to think through them and to engage these ideas and um, it's a challenge. It really, really is a challenge. Because at that level, the vast majority of people that are helping them do that in school don't really have the tools to do it in themselves. So how are they going to help someone else do it? It's, it really is a problem. So uh, all of that's to say, not that we give up or despair, but it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And sometimes that we are heedless in our awareness. Sometimes we think that we're aware, but we're actually heedless because that we think that we're aware. And, you know, this is a time really that there's coming a time upon the Ummah of our Prophet it's a hadith, is that the only one that will be saved is the one who makes a dua, a dua al-gharik, is like who supplicates like the supplication of a drowning person. And we're experiencing a time like that. There's certain things, it's like, Ya Rabb, trying to do something, but there's so many different things going on. Yeah, <laughs> The only solution you think is to supplicate to Allah as if you're drowning. And the Bashar of our Prophet is, is that that person will be saved. But we have to supplicate in that way with that state of heart, like someone who's drowning. And imagine yourself drowning. That just, you're literally, you're, you can't breathe. You're, can't swim, you're about to die. And the sincerity that you would that place in your dua so that you're saved. If we can have that at the heart level, that, that's a source of salvation for us in very difficult times.
So he says, be on close guard against pride, for it is the ailment that afflicted Iblis and prevented him from obeying God the Exalted's command. And then he says that we asked us to save God from all afflictions. He said, also be on close guard against forgetting God the Exalted, His remembrance in the hereafter, for heedlessness is a major cause of ruin. And that one of the things that goes along with heedlessness is idleness. Is that if we're idle, we are much more prone to being heedless. It's a very good idea to preoccupy ourselves with things constantly, constantly, constantly. And from here, this is what requires a lot of wisdom. And this is why it requires a lot of maturity as well when we read certain books, especially books of fiqh, that oftentimes the underlying assumption was that people were a certain way in their time. And from our perspective in the time in which we live, is that we have to have tafannun, be extremely creative in how we deploy different things that can be done that are from the realm of permissible just to keep people out of falling into further trouble. That's really where we're at. In relation to our own selves, I'm not even talking about the, our children or the younger generation, in relation to our own selves. And this is why that you almost have to encourage people in our time to have uh, uh, that, you know, hobbies that they do, things that they find solace in that are from the realm of the permissible. And someone might say, oh, why are they wasting their time doing that? No, it's not about them wasting their time doing that. Think about it in the other sense. How, what are they preventing themselves from falling into as a result of doing that? And this is why when you have halal alternatives and a lot of you know, really you know, you know, good solutions to many of these problems is that we have to emphasize them and encourage people to uh, do them to prevent people from falling into a greater harm. Because he says, heedlessness is a major cause of ruin. It brings on all kinds of evils and afflictions in both this world and the next. So then the question rises is that how do we that make ourselves wakeful, which is the opposite of heedlessness. The greatest way of all is to be around wakeful people. Is to be around people that remind you of Allah. Our Prophet was asked about who the awliya are. And he says, They are the people who when they are seen, Allah is remembered. That is a healthy that thing, to be around people that remind you of Allah, that remind you of the importance to repent to Allah, that remind you of the importance of taking a straight path, that remind you of the importance of the obedience of Allah, that remind you of the importance of devoting yourself to worship and preparing for the afterlife. This is one of the greatest blessings of all. And that especially when it's regular, because there's certain things that can't happen in you unless you do them time and time again. Time and time again, time and time again. And then the effect of those things happens when someone is consistent over a long period of time. And you'd be surprised. Even if you were in a school, in a particular place that is somewhat protected from all the things in the world, and you're with the very best of people, still then you fall into states of heedlessness. And you need to be reminded, and you need to be reminded, and you need to be reminded. And that's the blessing of tarbiyah, which the vast majority of problems that happens at the level of the individual and at the level of the community uh, of the Ummah of our Prophet gets back to a lack of tarbiyah, a lack of spiritual training. Is that we haven't inculcated in ourselves many of the meanings that we need.
too, that ward off harm from ourselves and to be able to preserve community. Tarbiyah is of the utmost importance, but tarbiyah is not easy. It means is that you have to swallow the bitter pill of patience at times and to do things that you don't want to do. But in that is the healing, is that if you can subjugate yourself to that, and um, that there's that minor versions of it, and what has been arranged here is just a very, very, very watered-down version of it. And inshallah, it's still of benefit because it's connected to that great people, and that it's because of that connection to them is that it will still serve its purpose. But just very small things, like attending a weekly gathering of knowledge, a weekly gathering of remembrance. They're trying to pray at least one of the prayers in congregation during the day, if not two, just little things like this, uh, and that a little bit of service, volunteering a little here and there, uh, these things are of immense benefit that will have uh, very long-lasting rewards in this dunya, and inshallah ta'ala, and in the akhirah, may Allah ta'ala give us tawfiq and bless us, and take heed from these blessed words of Imam al-Haddad, who is the Haddad al-Qulub. He is the blacksmith of the heart. If we open up our hearts to these meanings, the meanings will do the work. And just that in the uh, event that we can't spend time with righteous people, we just read their books. Because there's a reality to reading their books of what happens that internally in your heart just by reading the books, just by reading the books, just by reading the books. And that has a profound impact at the level of the heart. We'll just take a little bit of Dr. Mustafa Bedoui's Man in the Universe. He says on the bottom of page 13, on the chapter, sub-chapter titled, The Pairs. And of each thing created, we two pairs. Says the Quran. Thus it is to be understood that everything in creation is paired. So Allah Ta'ala created pairs in His creation. The divine attributes are also said to be paired. For God is Dhul Jalali wa Ikram, the possessor of majesty and generosity. And only the divine essence of that is unique. Say He is God. He, God, is unique. This is one reason why the Quran affirms divine transcendence, God's uniqueness and incomparability before mentioning the pairs. Both those we know and those we do not. Transcendent is the creator of all the pairs, of what the earth produces of themselves and of what they do not know. Uh, and this is in Surah Yasin, that Allah Ta'ala subhanahu wa ta'ala azwaja kullaha. Um, and that when we talk about the pairs, this is very important for us to understand. Uh, and it's one of the great ways that we can reflect upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation. The, one of the great wisdom in it is is that only He is one, subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is reaffirmed in other passages such as the following, the originator of the heavens and earth. He has made for you of yourselves pairs, and pairs also of the cattle multiplying you therein. Like Him there is not. Here God speaks of Himself in His aspect as originator. Then He mentions the pairs, the heavens and the earth, which are the subtle cosmic and material dimensions. He then mentions at the terrestrial level the human and animal male-female pairs and then reaffirms his transcendence like him there is not. Examples of pairs from every conceivable perspective can be found in the Quran. From the structural or static cosmic perspective we can take as an example the heavens-earth pair which also may be termed visible-invisible or mulk-madakut. 
these from the sequential perspective corresponding to this world, next world, or dunya, akhira. The next world is further divided into paradise, hell, felicity, wretchedness. Then within the terrestrial world, we have day, night, winter, summer, sun, moon, mountains, plains, land, sea. Then the vegetable, animal, and human pairs. At the individual level, we have knowledge, ignorance, vice, virtue, love, hate, fortitude, panic, remembrance of God, distraction, attachment to the world, detachment, and so on. Similarly, similar relationships will be found at the molecular, atomic, and subatomic levels. To render these relationships clear, we must know that everything in existence was made according to a model or archetype in the eternal, immutable, divine knowledge. Every relationship here below corresponds to another at a higher level, and so on until their origin in the uncreated divine knowledge. The first pair which was created expressing this duality, and which became the model for every subsequent pair, is that of the pen, the qalam, and the guarded tablet, al-loh al-mahfub. The first is active and represents majesty, and the second is passive in relation to it and represents beauty. The Prophet ﷺ said that the first thing that God created was the pen. Then he made the tablet, then made the pen. Within the pen was commanded to inscribe on the tablet God's knowledge concerning his creation from the beginning to the last day. Thus the pen actively wrote and the tablet passively received its imprint. The first human pair was also of an active pole, Adam, who was the first to be created, and Eve, his passive complement. And then he says, the terms active, passive, male, female, positive, negative, are always to be understood in a relative and not absolute sense. Since what is active in relation to one thing is at the same time passive in relation to another. The pen, active in relation to the tablet, is also imminently passive in relation to the divine command which moves it. Men are active, which in this context means protective and supportive in relation to their wives, but passive in relation to their parents, teachers, and superiors. Whereas women are passive in relation to their husbands, of course, archetypally speaking, which means accepting of their protection and support, but active in relation to their children, whether males or females. Within a single relationship, for instance, that of the student and teacher, in general, the student is passive in relation to the teacher, but there may be some psychological elements in the student, which are active in relation to other particular elements in the teacher. Thus, each pole of a dyad not only has the potential for the opposite role in another dyad, but also can be a part of a complex set of relationships where active and passive interactions exist in both directions. The reason for this is that each pole of a dyad carries within it some of the constituents of the other, an obvious example being that the fact that both male and females produce male and female hormones, which differ only in their relative quantities. Furthermore, the term passive, quote, denotes no weakness or imperfection, the divine attributes of beauty can constitute passive perfection, whereas those of majesty constitute active perfection. Active and passive attributes or roles in earthly creatures are but the earthly shadows of these divine perfections. Passive attributes are no less necessary than active ones, for each complements the other. MashaAllah. There's a lot there, and um, this is... Uh, very important for us to understand. There's a lot of other things that we can come to understand through this knowledge that we're being gifted here. And this is that we understand everything in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation has an active and passive aspect to it. It's active in relation to one thing, passive in relation to another. And this helps us at the metaphysical level. This also helps us at the human level. It helps us to understand law. It helps us to understand so many things if we can understand how this is happening. 
And he's presenting this in the context of the pairs, in the context of opposites. And so that we see that the two major categories of Allah Ta'ala's attributes are the Jalali attributes and the Jamali attributes. The attributes of majesty and the attributes of beauty. And again here, this really, really helps us out. If it's in understanding that, that it's easy for a Muslim, for instance, to understand the difference between quantum mechanics, and, which appears to be very random, it appears to that just be that uncontrollable, but that's what Jalal is. A manifestation of Jalal, of majesty is, things appear to be random, they appear to not be that uniform. Whereas at the macro level, is that when you see the uniformity of the universe, where everything appears to be so perfect, and everything's in such order, for us, that's a manifestation of beauty. So, it's what's difficult for some people to reconcile, for us is very easy. It's easy for us to reconcile that if you understand Jalal and Jamal. This is just one tiny example and there are many other things like this. If you just have this one view of the world, there are so many things that you can reconcile. Is that where you ultimately realize is that both Jalal and Jamal ultimately are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything is from Allah. And they're both needed in creation. And there's deep wisdom in there being opposites to begin with. Because it is only in having opposites that you understand that certain things. Were there not to be an opposite of it, how would you ever understand what that thing is? And this is why it's been said, Through its opposite, things are known. If we didn't know there was such thing as pain, how would we know pleasure? There are certain things, if you didn't know them, how would you know ever its opposite? Anyhow, um, this also really helps us at the level of relationships in some of the ahkam of the sharia. They relate to both men and women. And when we speak about it archetypally speaking, what is meant by archetypally speaking here is not in every situation and that in with every single person. Is it so that we have to understand that these are, these are archetypes. But some of the rules of the sharia that some people might say, oh, that's not fair that it be like that for a woman, but it not be like that for a man. And, or that be like that for a man, but it's not like that for a woman. One of the ways that we can understand that is through that understanding the active-passive nature. Is that, yes, in certain situations, that in the family structure, that there are certain ahkam that give the male certain rights in the relationship, the husband. But then in another relationship, is that that same female that when previously in that relationship she was a spouse, a wife, is that now that she's a mother or she's a teacher, is that there are certain rights that the sharia gives her. So the same person that is at one time active in one relationship is passive in another. That same male that is active, again, archetypally speaking, in that relationship, and he explains it here as support in that taking care of someone, is passive in relation to his teachers, passive in relation to his boss at work, passive in relation to his parents. And again, what is meant by passive here is not that you just are always receiving, but archetypally speaking. It really helps for us to see things like this uh, because then you start to realize is that everything has a passive and active nature. 
And what that solves is this problem that people have is like, I don't want to be passive in this situation. Right? Everything is active and passive. Have adab with Allah. Is that when you're supposed to be active, have adab in terms of how you're active. When you're supposed to be passive, have adab in terms of how you're passive. Arch again, archetypally speaking. And that solves a lot of these problems that, that people have and these hang-ups. That many of which are as a result of them being infected by a worldview that is foreign to the way that we are taught to see things. There's a lot more that's there. That's all that we have time for now. But inshallah ta'ala, we'll stop there and continue on. Um, I apologize. We never leave time for questions. I, I will be, I'm committed to uh, leaving time for questions because I know some of these topics really require questions, especially when Dr. Zephyr is in class. He's always aching to ask a question. I can tell you when to ask a question, right? Okay, inshallah. Well, uh, we only have a few minutes before Isha. So we're just going to hear a qasida. But inshallah, I'm going to be committed to, inshallah, allowing at least five, if not ten minutes in the future for questions every session. But I need reminders. And then someone, that maybe that was David's ishara, was just to, to walk out to indicate to me, okay, khalas, wrap it up. <laughs> Time for Q&A. Inshallah. Tawadda <laughs> sayyam. Smart qasida.